I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Gesturing actually lightens your cognitive load. So if you gesture while expressing something while doing a task, you actually have more effort left over to do the task than if you don't gesture. So it's not at all clear to me it's bad for you. I think it is cognitively quite good for you. And it's certainly good for your listener, because it tells the listener all kinds of things about you. That's Susan Golden Meadow. She spent decades studying the way we use our hands when we talk. And she's made what to me is a surprising discovery, that not only do gestures help our listeners understand us, Gestures help us understand ourselves. They help us think. And as children, they even help us to learn. This is really interesting to be talking with you because we've done a couple of hundred shows more. And we've talked about communication so much. But this is an area of communication we haven't touched on, is what gesture brings to it. And it turns out that it brings more than communication. I love the story that you started early in the book with about Princess Diana, I think it was, getting lessons on how not to gesture. What was the point of that? Well, I mean, she was really the gesturer, and she was going to tell her tale with her hands, and her advisor just literally tied up her hands so she couldn't express herself. Literally tied her hands? The advisor thought that what she would express was emotion. But she didn't really think about the fact that Diana could express her ideas, too, her thoughts with her hands. I think they would be equally worried about that, the the royal family. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting. I guess if you're in the royal family business, you don't want people to know how you're feeling. But I think that's right. It could be even more dangerous for them to know what you're thinking. Yes. And that's, that's an interesting part of your book, is how much we communicate, not generalized feelings only, mm-hmm. but actual thoughts that we have. And it's kind of hard to grasp for, for those of us who haven't studied it the way you have. How does a gesture communicate a thought? Right. Well, in fact, many, many, many years of nonverbal communication studies have focused only on emotion, attitude, what gesture conveys about how we feel about what we're saying, how we feel about who we're talking to, um, just our emotional well-being. And it wasn't until David McNeil and Adam Kendon came along that they said, wait a minute, wait a minute, there are things that you're saying with your hands that are, that's part of the conversation. It's not just your attitude toward the conversation, it's the conversation itself. Um, So I started off thinking about gesture as conveying real ideas. Uh, And emotion, of course, too. It's not that it doesn't convey emotion. It's just that it can convey ideas as well. Should I give some examples? Would that be helpful? It it sure would. I can't can't picture it. You can't even imagine it. Okay. So the the simplest kinds of cases are the iconic gestures that represent ideas or represent things. So, for example, if a child is, you, you pour a big, tall glass into a short, flat container. And the amount of water is exactly the same. And you ask the kid, is it the same amount of water or a different amount of water? When they're young, they say it's a different amount of water. Because the second container is not as high as the first one. Right. But when you ask them to explain it, there are 
different kinds of kids. So one kid will say, well, it's different because this one's tall and this one's short. When you said the word tall, you raised your hand up higher. Right. So they are expressing the idea that the height of the container matters. Right. Okay. But contrast that child with another one who says exactly the same thing. It's different because this one's tall, but represents the width of the container with his hands. And this one's short and represents the width of the container with his hands. So the idea was you could see that the child understood that there was a factor that was important, which was the width of the container. Just right. And you could only tell that from the gesture. That's right. The first child knows about height. The second child knows about height and width. And if you're going to really understand that the amount of water is the same when it's poured, you need to understand the width. So even though width never entered the kid's talk, that child was ready to learn. So when we gave them all instruction in conservation of liquid, um, those are the children who learned. So by virtue of of displaying that idea in your hands, it, it showed the world that he knew a little bit more than the other child and was ready to learn about conservation. This may be too much to ask on the spur of the moment, but can you think of a situation in ordinary life where a parent dealing with a child, let's say, or a husband dealing with a wife or a wife dealing with a husband can use this sense of reading the other person's gestures to understand what you need to do next to make progress with that person. Right. Well, I could imagine, maybe not a husband and wife, but say say somebody talking to a therapist who says their relationship, her relationship with her husband is, is very tight, but then gestures something like that, which doesn't which was, suggest... Which was very tight. While she's saying very so, tight, she's putting her hands together, clasping her fingers. But then at, as soon as she says it, she pulls her hands apart. But doesn't say anything about that. But she shows how untight it is when she pulls her hands apart and presumably doesn't even know she's doing it. I think so. I think that often when we produce these gestures, we have no idea we're we're using our hands in this way. Um, But the people who are watching us can see it and appreciate it. Now, what about, let's get back to Princess Diana, somebody in that in playing the role of Princess Diana in ordinary life, wanting to communicate well, should that person be encouraged to use their hands more? Well, I think we have to be a little careful because, you know, we've seen a whole array of presidents who have been taught how to gesture, and they look silly, actually. That's exactly what I was driving at. I'm interested to get your reaction to it. The more deliberate a gesture is, it seems to me, as a performer, the more deliberate it is, the more in danger you are of looking unspontaneous. Right. Of it not not looking real. It looks rehearsed. Right. So we, and initially, when I was thinking about what gesture, how we could use gesture, how we could harness it in the classroom, I was thinking that if you told kids to gesture, then 
gesture would lose all of its magical ability to predict learning and things like that. So we set about telling children to gesture on a math task. So they explain their responses the first time, and then we ask them to explain their responses a second time, but this time to move their hands. And they did, because they did what they were told, and it turned out their gestures did not just mirror their speech. If anything, their gestures were free to express different ideas. So they expressed more different ideas and actually correct ones the second time when they were encouraged to gesture. And that being encouraged to gesture actually led them to being ready to learn so that later on when we instructed them, it was those kids who learned. So I was wrong, actually. If I tell you, and you're a little wrong too, but maybe not as an actor. I mean, it depends on how deliberate it is. I think when you tell a child to gesture, when you tell somebody to gesture, they can't think hard about how to move it in a particular way. It's almost like breathing. You know, if I think mm. too hard about breathing, you're not going to breathe very well. If I think, think too hard about gesturing, I'm just going to mess myself up and I won't even be able to talk. I don't know. I've actually wondered about actors and thought there may be different kinds of actors who either do it spontaneously or, or who learn how to gesture, learn their role in gesture. In my lifetime, I've noticed a different approach to gesturing. Mm-hmm. When I was very young, there were actors who were still revolting against what was called the Del Sartre style of acting, of gesturing, where there was a gesture assigned to every emotion. Oh. And the audience was supposed to know what the gesture meant. A hand to the head was, oh, my God, what have I done? Mm-hmm. Or I'm I'm losing my mind. You grip grip your curls with both hands, right? And that was replaced, probably beginning the popularity of Freud, mm-hmm. with gestures that seem to be unconscious revelations of the character. Yeah, and you'd get a mixture of actors who decided what would be an unconscious gesture, and other actors who would spontaneously arrive at them. Yeah, without really understanding how they got there, but it would probably tend to look more spontaneous and more genuine. Right. And then you get to what you were describing a minute ago, the politicians who are actually told how to wave their arms, mm-hmm. which, which reminds me of Hamlet's uh, admonition to the players, don't saw the air too much with your hand. Yes, right. <laughs> well, people are told not to gesture too much. You know, your grandmother always said, keep your hands down. You look like you don't know what you're talking about. So there is sort of a folk uh, admonition not to gesture. But, but we have found that gesturing actually lightens your cognitive load. So if you gesture while expressing something while doing a task, you actually have more effort left over to do the task than if you don't gesture. So it's not at all clear to me it's bad for you. I think it is cognitively quite good for you. And it's certainly good for your listener because it tells the listener all kinds of things about you. The interesting thing about this is when you say the gesture can reveal what you don't mean to reveal. Hmm. An example of that, I guess, is the patient talking to the therapist about her marriage. Right. What about the idea that gestures help us think? How does that work? We don't actually know how it does it. What is it doing? Yeah, that's interesting. Have you or anybody tried to make the connection 
using MRI machines or anything like that? Is that is that a plan in the works or what? It is absolutely in the works. We I have, um, but not MRI because you can't move. We've been uh, using FNIRS, which is um, you know it's a, a little cap that you put on your head and it it, it looks at um, it, it has lights through you, through these electrodes, and you can move as you're. Have, as you have this cap on right. so that we can, you know, have a child solve a mass problem or, or have somebody talk and we can look at their gestures and hear their speech and see whether it's matching or mismatching. And I'm just so curious to know what's going on in that brain when you're saying one thing and gesturing another. I want to know the answer to that. <laughs> Yeah, I don't blame you. I would, I would be really curious, especially with this lifetime behind you of exploring what the, what the outcome is of the gesture and the, and, the, and the thoughts. How are they doing it? It's interesting that we seem to need to gesture. I, I pass people on the street who are talking on their cell phones, and they're gesturing a mile a minute to someone who obviously can't see what they're doing. Right. But it's helping the conversation somehow. And you you talk in your book about even people who were blind from birth gesture while they talk. And even when they're talking it, to blind people. Yeah, that's so amazing. So they know that they get, that the person can't see their gestures. So it really do it really sounds if you had no other evidence it really sounds like it indicates that we gesture to help us get to what we're trying to say. And as I said that, <laughs> this is great. As I said, it, we gestured to help us. I brought my hand up from my lap to yeah. my mouth <laughs> to right. help us get to what we want to say. I made the gesture before I, I found the words that I was, I was looking for. And what about memory? How, what, what's an example of gesture helping you with memory? Well, the way we've, these are little contrived studies that we've done, but we've had people describe a little scene and the ones who spontaneously gesture actually remember the scenes better than the ones who don't. So then to to make sure that it's really the gesture, we've told them to gesture. Okay, now gesture when you describe the scene and they also do better at recalling them. I'm interested in the exact way you ask them to use their hands or to gesture. Does it vary right. with age? Do you say it differently to different people? If you said it to a really young kid, the word gesture might not be as meaningful. Right. That's right. Right. So when we instruct the children, we say, next time I want you to just move your hands as you explain this problem. Huh. And they know what we're talking about, which is interesting in and of itself. Yes, they seem yes. to know what we're talking about. You know, that's not the most... Now, when we're talking to a two-year-old or a one-year-old and we want them to point, we say, and put your finger right, your index finger right here. And that actually helps them learn words, which is sort of surprising. But you're right, we say it differently. For adults, we say, you know, gesture next time you're explaining this. Tell me how it helps them learn words. I don't know how, but oh, I know well, what, that. What, what's, what's, what's the process? <laughs> I'll tell you anyway. what the, okay, all right. So we, we send, you know, an experimenter goes out and interacts with the child and um, is teaching that has a bunch of pictures to teach the child and says, oh, look, that's a dress. Do you see the dress? And either you just say that 
Or you say, oh, look, that's a dress, and point at the dress. Or you say, oh, look, that's a dress, point at the dress, and have the child point at the dress. And they do that for a whole bunch of pictures, do it over a period of eight weeks. And over those eight weeks, of course, the gesturing kids produce more and more gestures, but at the end of it, they also know more words. Mm. Now, why? It's unclear. I mean, that's what we need to figure out. We also know that children who gesture a lot when they're very young tend to have larger vocabularies when they're older. Do they know more of the batch of words that they've been pointing at, or do they know more words in general? In general. In general? In general. They actually, yeah, I know, they don't know more words than the ones that they pointed out. That we didn't find an effect now, there. That's, but that it's really, just, that's like, like all research. It makes you want to know so much more. Why would that be happening? Why would pointing and right. learning the words like dress and the things in the pictures, that, that right. sounds reasonable. But to know other words that you haven't pointed at, that seems like magic. Right. But I think that it's, it's partly, it's, it's greasing the word learning mechanism. It's making the children pay attention a little bit more to a word learning situation. It's making them, um, you know, maybe involve, just involving your body in learning may make it a different process. All of these are possibilities that we are needing to, you know, do some research and figure out what's going on. Do you think that teachers have somehow been trained to look for these gestures to know when a kid is ready to go to the next step in understanding something? Or is it is it just intuitive? Do, do, do we all have it? Actually, I don't think pe- teachers are trained. I think really good teachers do it spontaneously. They just know to look at what's happening. I mean, we all have the ability to read gesture. I think we could probably make the teaching situation a little bit better by encouraging teachers to look at gesture. And that's what I try to do in the third part of of the book when I talk about where it's relevant to the real world, try to get teachers to just pay attention to the children's gestures because it can, when it says something different from what they're saying, that's important. Mm. That's really an idea the child is having that you're not going to appreciate unless you look, unless you look at their, their hands. When we come back from our break, Susan Golden Meadow prompts me to think about how I use gestures when I'm acting. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other and all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you. Either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm, I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash clearandvivid, and thank you. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Susan Golden Meadow. 
All this time we've been talking remotely, of course, which means we've been looking at each other in little boxes on our computer screens. And that's something that Susan is very aware of. I see your hands all the time. You, my my hands are below the frame, I'm sure, most of the time. I know. But I know. you're consciously bringing your hands into the picture. Yep. I do it consciously because I know that gesture really helps. So I, whenever I give a talk on Zoom, I am, I bring my hands up in a sort of unnatural way. It's too close to my face. I would do it down here if I were just speaking naturally. So I, you know, we, Zoom could make the box bigger too. You know, there are other ways of doing this. (laughs) Zoom can save the world. Zoom can make the box bigger. Or destroy it. Or destroy it. (laughs) So, does this give you any hint about what came first, language or gesture? That's a great question. I am uh, just right now working, I'm, I'm participating in a workshop in Israel. Started in February, it's going to do another session in June and July to discuss just that question. What's the evolution of language? What is the role that gesture played in it? The other work that I do, which is looking at deaf kids of hearing parents who are constructing a gesture language on their own, might suggest that gesture is is sort of a really robust way that people communicate. But of course, those children are modern-day children. They're not ancient. Mm. So it's a big question, and I don't know how I feel about it, actually. I think that I can go either way, and I and we're we're going to talk about it in uh, June and July. Do you think there's a clue in what you you refer to in the book as home signers? Just so I understand it, what do you mean by home signers? Okay, so a home signer is a profoundly deaf child who can't acquire speech, and this was when I started observing them; they didn't have cochlear implants, so he just has a hearing aid, and the hearing aid isn't working to acquire speech. Okay. Um, and they're born to hearing parents who don't know sign language. And at the time, the, um, the advice was to just talk to them and have them learn speech. Well, that's hard. And so many of the deaf children at that age couldn't learn to speak. But it's not like they sit in their house and do nothing with respect to communication. They start gesturing and gesturing to their parents, and gesturing to their siblings, and gesturing to us. And they construct these little gesture sentences that actually have structure to them. So if they want to eat an apple or want you to eat an apple, they'll point at the apple first and then do eat, and not the other way around. Make make an eating gesture, putting putting a hand to the mouth. right, an eating gesture, right. And they rarely do eating gesture first and then point, even though it's pretty obvious what they're talking about, whether or not the order is one direction or the other. So they're more systematic than they need to be to be understood. That sounds like there may be an inborn grammar. I, th- I think that, I know that's a very dangerous thing to say, but I think that we are born with a desire to structure our communication that is, we don't like to just put it out there in a mishmash. We like to have it structured. You know, because there, there are ways uh, that those deaf kids could express their ideas. They could act like mimes. You know, if I want to talk about eating an apple, I can pick it up and I can, you know, pretend to shake it, to polish it on my shirt, and then I could pretend to eat it. And all of that would convey apple eating. Mm. That is not what the home signers do. They point at an apple, and then do an eat gesture, and then maybe point at me to, to suggest that I should be eating the apple. 
It's very different from what a mime would do. We like to divide up our, you know, create little words. And then once you've created little words, you have to put them back together again. And that's where the structure comes in. It's just an amazing thing. You've opened up a whole a whole bouquet of flowers. <laughs> Say that instead of can of worms. <laughs> That's a nicer metaphor. Thank you. <laughs> you had a very interesting article in Scientific American about Amanda Gorman, who seems to have consciously chosen to gesture, especially while she did her poem at the inauguration. What do you suppose that did for the poem? Well, to me, it made it more vibrant, more real. She expressed things with her hands that she didn't always express with her mouth when, you know, she's talking about a a young girl of a single mother, and she makes it clear with her hands that she's talking about herself. Mm. I mean, I thought that she was... Her her words were wonderful, but when taken in conjunction with her hands, she was so expressive. And so, you know, everybody just really melted in, when listening to her. But I think watching her helped as well. But there we are talking about deliberate gestures, I believe. I would be surprised if she hadn't thought those gestures through. Mm. I'd be really surprised. Um, it's possible. I mean, you know, I haven't had a conversation with her about gesture, but I would be surprised if she hadn't thought exactly about how to use her words. But she's a great gesture. So when I saw her on the Late Late Show, she was gesturing up a storm and using her hands to be expressive, and I'm sure she wasn't thinking about those gestures. So I think what she did was she used the gestures that she, she spontaneously creates, thought about them, and then brought them in and choreographed them. I don't yeah. know that, but I guess that. I got that impression, too, and I did see her interviewed where the gestures were apparently not thought out, but very expressive. Toward the end of our conversation, Susan Golden Meadow took advantage of the opportunity of talking to an actor. I mean, I've always wanted to talk to actors about how they deal with gesture, whether they, in both ways, whether they think about the gestures that they do and plan them, or whether they just let themselves go, and then how do they react to gestures where their um, their fellow actors are producing them? Are they reading information off the gesture that might not be said and reacting to it? You know, this is very interesting. There are times when I can see in an actor's performance that a gesture is indicated in the script or been asked for by the director because it looks kind of demonstrative. It looks figured out in advance. Mm-hmm. And there are other gestures. Hopkins, Anthony Hopkins, makes very spontaneous gestures. They certainly look spontaneous to me. And my my guess is that they come up improvisatorially mm-hmm. in the playing of a scene, in the shooting of one take, and might not show up in another take. Right. Now, in movies, if you make a gesture, you kind of have to repeat it every time because when they cut from a wide shot to a tight shot, your hand has to be in the same part of the frame as it was before. Yeah, that's harder. I was wondering whether you react to the gestures that your fellow actors produce. Yes, that's the best. Even if they didn't say something. 
absolutely. Even if they're saying something, the way they're saying it, what they really mean by it is augmented by their whole body language and especially their their gestures. And if you don't react to that, you're just acting by rote. You're just playing a recording mm-hmm. of what you decided to do and say rather than reacting spontaneously to the other person, which looks more like real life. Right. Because it is an aspect of life that you, you, you're really hanging on their every word. But in coming up with gestures, I really can only speak for myself. I, I don't decide on a gesture in advance. They occur when they occur. And like all the other aspects of a performance, they either stick as you do it again and again, as you play the scene again and again, or they they get edited out as as unnecessary, as too much going on. And that's a, that's both a conscious and unconscious process. Mm-hmm. I mean, does that answer your question? I don't know. I roamed all over the yes, place. Yes, it does. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that when I lecture, I don't plan my gestures either, but I know I can feel when I'm instructing or giving a, a lecture that at some point my hands come up mm. and they're ready to go. And at that point, I am really invested in what I'm saying. I'm really trying to reach my audience. I just I feel like it's a good sign when my hands come up. <laughs> it's so great. I bet everybody listening to this is going to see the person they're talking to differently. And the person they're mm-hmm. talking to will see them differently because they'll be, <laughs> they'll be more they'll be relying more on the gesture than they probably did before. Thank you for a really interesting conversation. It's re- it's I really enjoyed it fun. too. Thank you. We end our conversations with seven quick questions, which like okay. gestures tell us even more about you. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> First question. What do you wish you really understood? Oh, all the questions that you asked. Like, how does gesture work? How does it work to change our minds? That's what I really want to understand. Good. Second question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Carefully. Carefully. <laughs> but I think it's important, actually. You know, I mean, okay, this is an anecdote from, from my book. I had... Um, in many places in this book, I say I had this idea, da 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 da, but I was wrong, and I had a friend read it, um, the book. Just she's not a, an academic and she's not a researcher, and she said, "I think you waffle too much. I think you don't, you know, put yourself up there. Um, you, you're just being too, too unsure of what you're saying." And I said, "No, no, no. This is science. You know, if I have an idea and my Experiments prove me wrong. That's not a bad thing. That's a really good thing. Mm. That tells me that I had a good idea. It was wrong. Now I can go in that direction. But that, I was very upset actually that this reader, who's a very smart lady, thought that was it was a weakness. That it's it an a interesting weakness. approach to this question because it 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 kind of implies that you're doing the other person the favor of helping them see that there may be reason to think that the, the information they have is not, not quite right. Not quite right, yeah. <laughs> right. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Hmm. 
That I don't know. I don't know. Has anybody? I I haven't been asked very many strange. Must have been one I asked you today. Yeah, but it could, could be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I okay, like them all, on. so it's fine. <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker? Mm, you try to non-verbally interject. You know. Is there a gesture for and that? Then inter- There's not quite a gesture, but you can sort of nod your head and try to put in a word here or there. It's hard. It's hard. <laughs> Let's say you're sitting next to someone at a dinner table who you've never met. How do you begin a genuine conversation? Yeah, that's really hard. I mean, usually I ask people about what they do and what what they are interested in. Um, And they will either be open and honest or they won't. Uh, But that usually starts a good conversation to know what they care about. Okay, next to last. What gives you confidence? Confidence in a fact, confidence in myself. What kind of confidence? Well, it is, I've, I've noticed that this question is kind of open-ended in that way. So you're free to choose either either aspect. Okay. All right. Well, so confidence in myself. Um, I've been at this for a long time. So over the years, I've gotten lots of feedback from people and good suggestions and suggestions to do other things. So I'm getting more and more confident. I am a woman and didn't start out as confident because women don't start out as confident. So over my lifetime of doing this, I've been doing it for 50 years, I have gotten good feedback. And and I have to say that my husband was the person who gave me the most confidence. He was always there to encourage me. Always. That's great. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? Oh, God. What book changed my life? That's too hard. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I can tell you, but going to Geneva, I can tell you what event changed my life. Oh, well, that's interesting. Going to Geneva, my junior year abroad, when I was at Smith College, changed my life. Why? I discovered Piaget, Jean Piaget. I discovered developmental psychology. I discovered observing the world. I discovered research, and I was hooked. That changed my life. Well, then maybe it's the book by, the first book by Piaget. But probably Piaget. Those are hard to read, actually. <laughs> a little dense. Well, this has been so much fun. And I'm yeah. I'm sorry I didn't have my hands higher in the frame. It would have been yes, even right. better. Okay. Next time. Next time. <laughs> Thanks so much. Great. Okay. Thank you. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Susan Golden Meadow is the Distinguished Service Professor in the Department of Psychology and the Department of Comparative Human Development at the University of Chicago. Her new book called Thinking With Your Hands, The Surprising Science Behind How Gestures Shape Our Thoughts, will be published in June. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. 
Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Ken Duckworth. He's the chief medical officer of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and he's written a terrific book titled You Are Not Alone. It's a guide for those with mental health problems, and it's unique in that, along with advice from experts, it tells of the lessons learned from people and families who are themselves struggling to live with mental illness. I interviewed 130 people, Alan, from all across America. Almost every single one of them said, the idea that my experience could help another person, and that I'm going to be in a book as a teacher, that my little story has meaning, is the most amazing thing to me. That you consider me a kind of expert, Ken. And I'm like, you are a kind of expert. You've lived with this phenomenon in your life for years. And you've learned something about it. Ken Duckworth author of You Are Not Alone, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.